have our kiddos ages three to kindergarten. You can come on down. Oh my goodness, with Alicia and Sean. Never mind, turn around, go back. All right, so glad to see everyone this morning. Uh, We're actually going to be back in Luke chapter 7, uh, 36 through 50. It's the same passage we went through last week. Uh, No, it's not going to be the same sermon, even though I thought about it, just to see if any of you are paying attention. Uh, No, this is the story of Jesus going to a, a dinner at Simon the Pharisee's house, uh, this woman of the city, she's called, uh, comes into Simon's house. She takes advantage of a, a, cultural, uh, a, a, a cultural formality that allows the needy to come into the homes of the wealthy when they have banquets or feasts such as this so that they can scavenge for leftovers. Uh, we, we discovered last week, though, that this woman was not there for the leftovers. She was there uh, for Jesus. And, and as she's worshiping Jesus by uh, wiping his feet with her tears and, and anointing him with oil, Simon the Pharisee becomes indignant and, and wonders, well, how can Jesus be such a good person if he's allowing this sinful woman uh, to, to touch him like this? And, and Jesus explains grace to Simon and, and that we are all in need of grace, no matter how religious we are, no matter how pious we think we are, no matter how uh, proud we are in our sinfulness, everyone is in need of grace and, and no one is beyond grace. And so a uh, wonderful message, uh, I'm not like bragging on myself, I'm just saying the truth that we found last week uh, was, was so wonderful and it's so encouraging because it lets us know that yes, we are completely terrible sinners but it also reminds us that there's grace found in the gospel, that there's grace found uh, in Christ. And so we're going to be back. I want to reread that passage this morning, and then we're going to take a little bit different perspective uh, as, as we examine it for a second time. In Luke chapter 7, uh, verse 36, it says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the anointment. With the ointment, sorry. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet... He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 nar and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose... For whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins which are many, 
are forgiven. For she loved much, but, she who, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the grace and the mercy that's found in your gospel. And God, this morning, I pray that uh, this message touches our hearts in a way that uh, just causes us to, to worship you and to be thankful and appreciative for the grace that you give uh, poor, needy sinners. And God, I also pray that it softens our hearts towards one another and that it encourages us and, and exhorts us to share the mercy that you've shown us with those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, this week, uh, like I said, we're, we're covering the same passage. Last week, we, we looked at primarily uh, the horizontal implications of this passage. So we, looked, we read this passage and we said, what does this mean uh, regarding me and God? Okay, the horizontal relationship, or the, the vertical relationship, excuse me. Uh, we, we, we said, what does this mean uh, regarding us and God. And, and it means that we are all sinners. It doesn't matter how long you've gone to church. It doesn't matter uh, how much you tithe. It doesn't matter how moral you are. It doesn't matter. Uh, none of that matters, okay? In your heart, you are a prideful sinner. We also looked at the, from the woman's perspective because she had spent most of her life as a very obstinate, very uh, stubborn, very rebellious sinner who was actually proud in her sin and was not broken of that pride until she discovered the message of the gospel in Christ. And so we looked at both of these people who were both debtors, who were both had a debt they could not pay because of their sin and both needed Jesus. However, within this story, only one actually receives the gospel. The woman is forgiven of her sins. Simon carries on in his uh, religious pride. And, and, and so we looked at how we should relate to God, what our relationship is with God. We're all sinners. It doesn't matter how well you think you're behaved. You need his grace because we are all worthy of eternal punishment. So this week, what I want us to look at is the same truths that we found last week, but I want us to look at it and ask the question, how, does, how should this affect my relationship with people around me? How should this affect uh, the, the, the interactions I have with other church members and also others outside of the church? <clears throat> because when we experience grace and mercy, like the Beatitudes say, when we receive mercy, we should show mercy. Byron had a wonderful sermon on that a few weeks ago when we were going through the Beatitudes. If you actually know what forgiveness is, if you actually know what mercy is, then that should be shown through your interactions with others, especially other believers. And so that's what I wanted to look at this morning and, and ask those questions of ourselves. Am I behaving like I know what mercy is? Am I treating others like I know what forgiveness is? And so as we go through this, the first thing that we have to understand, uh, the first thing that we have to do is we have to take off our mask 
and be genuine with the people around us. If you think back to last week, uh, we, we talked about how this Pharisee had what I referred to as the mask of morality. Um, I coined that term before COVID, so it has nothing to do with masks. Like, we're, like it's not what you think. Um, totally original, okay? Um, not a COVID thing. But we talked about what the, the, the Pharisee has this mask of morality. So basically, he thought if he did enough good stuff, he could cover up the sinfulness that was in his heart. If I just do enough really good stuff, then that's all that's going to show up. I'm just going to be able to cover all this filth and all of this darkness and all of this hatefulness and this pride up with all my religious activity. And and it was so important that that what the Pharisee, what Simon could not figure out was that until he took that mask off and stood before God, vulnerable, and, and until he was willing to unearth all of that sin and realize how lost he really was, the gospel could never be a reality to him because he felt like he had no need of a savior because he was saving himself just fine. And so it's critical that we take off this mask when we stand before God and be honest with ourselves and be honest with God and be broken and poor in spirit, mourn over our sin, and, and, and be honest with ourselves so that we can realize that we need a Savior. We need God's grace. But it's not just God that we have to take the mask off for. It's not just ourselves that we have to take this mask off for. We need to take the mask off when we're interacting with people around us, outside of the church, and within the church. So first of all, let's talk about how we need to take the mask off for those outside of the church. We have to stop pretending to be these super moral religious police that are just waiting for everyone else to figure out that we're right and start to be like us. Okay, I know we don't have anybody like that in here, but there might be somebody like that somewhere. Uh, But too often, we get so caught up in, in how religious and how pious we are and we turn into Simon the Pharisee. We've got it all figured out. I don't know why everybody else can't get on board. I say it all the time. If people would just start listening to me, things would get a lot better. But we get that attitude. We, we start to think that we're above everyone else. We start to have this false sense of superiority over other people. But the gospel constantly slaps us in the face and reminds us that we're not that great. If you look in 1 John, towards the end of the New Testament, uh, John is writing to the church, and the the book of 1 John is great uh, because it really gets into the Christian life and and the assurances that we have and and the marks of a a Christian life. And so John is speaking in this context when, when he writes these words in 1 John chapter 1. Verse 10, says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. <clears throat> I'm sorry, let's start in 9. Whoever says he is in the light, I'm on the wrong chapter, that's why that didn't make sense. Okay, 1 John 1, 9. We all love this passage, okay? We, we love this verse right here, 1 John 1, 9, because it's, it talks about this forgiveness. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We love that verse. 
We love this idea of, okay, so no matter what I do, I can come to God and he's going to forgive me. And that's what the gospel is about. It's about forgiveness. And none of us are beyond God's forgiveness. However, what we often forget, and we're going to get into this more in depth here in a moment, is that as you're converted, as, you're, as you become a Christian and your heart of stone is removed and it's replaced with the heart of flesh, this process starts to take place in which you're changing and becoming more like Christ. But that process is not finished within this lifetime, which brings us to verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So what John's saying there, he's not, we've talked about the sinful nature of man. We have this, everyone naturally within us has this uh, inclination to sin, but John here is talking about specific actions of sin. So he's saying, if, if you're going to sit there and tell me that you do not sin, okay, or that you have not sinned, that you have not performed an act of sin, then you're lying. And the reason is, we still have sinful desires that we struggle with as believers, and sometimes we stumble and we fall into those sinful desires and we actively sin as believers, it's, it's this process of sanctification. It, it, it's, it's not done overnight. We struggle with sin, and oftentimes we fall, and we actually act and behave sinfully. We perform sinful acts. That's what John is saying. He's saying, if, if you try to tell me that you don't sin anymore, you're a liar. But here's what we need to learn today here at... First Baptist Spearman, we have to relearn this truth because there's many of us that like to act as though we don't sin, and we like to have this judgment over everyone else that's not as good as we are. There's never been a follower of Jesus that reached perfection this side of the grave. You're not going to be completely free of sinful desires. You're not going to be completely without sin until the return of Christ. And when we act like we're without sin and, and by our own strength morally superior to unbelievers, it misrepresents God's word and it reveals us to be utter hypocrites. But so often we have this attitude of arrogance and superiority uh, uh, among many believers and, and we're making ourselves look ridiculous and we're destroying our witness. And here's the problem with that. The biggest problem with that is like the woman of the city was done listening to the Pharisees. Okay, remember what we talked about last week? We talked about how stubborn she was. She was a complete exile socially and religiously and probably in other areas of her life. She, she was not welcomed there. I'm sure she had heard the same message over and over and over again about how she needed to do better, but she was done listening to the Pharisees. She did not care anymore about the religious conservative people within her culture, within her society, because she had seen them for the hypocrites that they were, and she was completely done listening to their message. She was completely obstinate in her sin until she met Jesus. She did not care what the Pharisees had to say. Our community members are also done listening to a bunch of self-righteous churchgoers. 
We like to hang out at Napa or Gordon's and tell dirty jokes and gossip or we go to the hair salon and we speak poorly of people we're supposedly friends with and we meddle in other people's business or we stumble down the street at Heritage Days. But when Sunday comes around or we run into the pastor or someone for church, we act like a saint that would never take part in any of those things. And we get holier than thou real quick. People are done listening to those kinds of Christians. They're done with the hypocrisy. If you want to have a witness, you need to start being honest about the fact that you are a sinner saved by grace and Jesus is changing you, but you still mess up sometimes. Don't glorify your sin or act like it's not a big deal. Okay, I'm, I'm not saying that we all of a sudden say that sin's no big deal. I'm not saying that you uh, brag about it. But what I am saying is that we need to be willing to admit that we do still sin, that we still struggle with sin, that our only hope in this battle against sin is Christ. And we need Jesus every single day. We have to stop acting like we have it all figured out. We have to stop acting like we're so much better than everyone else, even though they see the things that we do and, and we prove to them day in and day out that we are in fact not better than them. Stop wearing a mask and let people see what a follower of Jesus being sanctified and kept by the grace of Jesus Christ looks like. John Piper had an amazing sermon and he, the main line in it was use your sin. And what he meant by that was, again, he's not saying that we just pretend that sin's no big deal. He's not saying that we glorify sin. What he's saying is, is when people come to you and they say, hey, I see the way you act. I know who you are. You, you're not fooling me with all of this religious stuff. You look them at square in the eye and you say, yes, I know that I am sinful. I know that I sin. I know that I fall and I stumble and I do all of these things, but I'm being saved by Jesus. I'm being slowly transformed by him. I'm being kept by him. Even though I fail all the time, he still keeps me in his grace. John Piper says, use your sin. Don't try to cover it up. Say, yes, I'm a sinner just like you are, but I found Jesus. And he's saving me from this sin as we speak. Stop pretending like you're something that you're not. Take the mask off. Let people see what a Christian growing in the faith and battling sin and, and, and being held by Jesus in his grace and transformed by him. Let people see what that looks like. So we have to take the mask off for people outside of the church, but we also have to take the mask off for people inside of the church. I want you to turn to Hebrews with me. And the author of Hebrews uh, actually gives us quite a few instructions on how to behave as a community of believers, how to behave as a local church. And in Hebrews chapter 3, he's commanding us on how we should help one another, how we should encourage one another. In Hebrews 3, 12 through 14, it says, Take care, brothers lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. 
So what the author here is telling us, he's saying, hey, you are extremely vulnerable to sin. Okay, look at verse 12. I mean, he makes it so clear. Lest there be any of you in, uh, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. He's saying, be careful to not fall into that. Because it's so easy for us to, to fall into this sin. And then he gives us a command that it's the community's job. Exhort one another. Help one another stay away from sin. Help one another in their faith. Help one another grow in their walk with Christ. Here's the problem, though. Most of the time, we don't even know who needs help because everyone has this mask on and they like to pretend that everything's just fine, even though their world is, in fact, falling apart. And this is just one passage, many, that speaks of the community of the church, uh, the, the type of community that the church is supposed to be building. We're supposed to be here for one another, but you have to allow yourself to be vulnerable with your brothers and sisters in Christ if they're going to help you. But oftentimes it's hard for us to open up and let people know that we have a problem. It's like, I mean, and, 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 and to illustrate this, I just, I mean, most of the time I refuse to go to the doctor because I don't want them to tell me that something's wrong with me, okay? I'd rather just not know. Um, but so many times we do the same thing. We, there's something wrong. There's, there's, there's something in our lives or something in our hearts. We're, we're, we have an addiction, we have a tragedy that's taking place, we have some sort of sin struggle that's going on and no one else around us knows what's happening because we don't want to be vulnerable and take our mask off and let people know that there might be something wrong with us. And so you come to church every single week and you smile and when people say good morning and ask you how you are, you say everything's fine. When in fact, everything in your world is falling apart because you're losing this battle with sin, but you're not willing to let anyone in to help you with it. Your marriage is in trouble. Your child is going astray. You have, you have this hidden addiction that you can't kick. You're dealing with depression, and, and it just keeps getting worse because you refuse to reach out for anyone. Well, that's exactly what the church is for. Lean into the community that God has designed for you and given to you. Your pastors, your leaders, your friends, we want to help. Let people in to help you. There are some of you that have been members here for 10 to 20 years that don't have a single meaningful relationship with anyone from this church. And what I mean by meaningful relationship is a relationship in which you can actually talk to someone about spiritual battles and struggles that you have going on in your life. Instead, your conversations consist of the weather, work, and how the kids are doing. Maybe you complain about all the holes in the streets around town. Not, still not sure what that's about. But we have these surface-level conversations, and some of these people you have known for decades, and you've never gotten any deeper than that, not once. Reach out to the people around you and stop pretending that you're fine. Take the mask off. We all struggle with sin. It's not like you're going to open up to somebody and they're going to be like, oh my goodness. Never heard of that before. Everybody struggles with sin. There's nothing new under the sun. 
Paul tells us that we have not been tempted by anything that hasn't been known by man. You're not going to tell anyone anything that, that they don't struggle with themselves. Open up and be willing to be vulnerable. Not only do we need to take the mask off for people outside of the church and within the church, but we have to be willing to understand, we have to have some discernment and know that not everyone is going to be in the exact same place in their walk with Christ as we are. Okay, I know we all like to think that like we're, we're up here and everybody's here is kind of lagging behind us and we're just waiting for them to catch up. That's kind of the, the, the attitude that we have a lot of the time. But we have to understand that in this process of sanctification, everyone's at different stages and everyone has started at different points. Okay, Romans chapter 8. It's another passage that everybody loves. It's often misused, but in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. It says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So we love that verse, but we forget the next verse. In verse 29, it says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So that's the good that Paul's talking about, okay? When it says that God works all things together for the good of those who love him, he's, what he's saying is everything in a Christian's life is specifically designed to sanctify them. And what we mean by that is to make us more like Jesus, and this is a gradual process, most of the time it's very gradual, that starts when we're converted and does not end until after this life. Like we said, you're not gonna be made perfect until after this life. And so we're all in the midst of this process that we call sanctification, and we're slowly being made more and more like Jesus. However, Here's what happens a lot of times is we don't think that other people are going quickly enough in that process. We don't like their lack of progress or, or how slow they're progressing. And to that point, we need to encourage one another to grow, okay? If someone professes to be a Christian and yet there's no evidence of sanctification, if there's no evidence that they're being conformed to the image of Christ at all, that should be concerning, okay? That should cause us to have a little introspection and say, hey, am I really following Jesus? Is the gospel a reality to me? Because the truth is we should be making progress in this transformation and becoming more like Christ. However, we have no right to look at others and deem them to not be progressing fast enough or deem them to not be where we think they're supposed to be. We should encourage growth. We should exhort one another. We read that in Hebrews. But we should also be sensitive to the fact that people grow at different rates and we all start at different places. For example, this woman that's in the story in Luke chapter 7, she had a lot of baggage with her. She's lived an entire lifetime of promiscuity. She's lived an entire lifetime of being pridefully sinful. And so while she's converted here, Jesus makes it clear that she has become a Christian. She has become a believer. It would be 
safe to say that she probably had a very difficult road of sanctification ahead of her. She, she probably had a very slow progress, okay, while her heart was changed from stone and she was given a heart of flesh, this process in which she's being conformed to the image of Christ probably took place slowly because she's bringing a lot of baggage with her. On the other hand, if you take a Pharisee like Simon or like Paul, who was formerly a Pharisee, when Paul was converted, the discipline aspect of the Christian life, praying, reading the scriptures, refraining from immoral conduct and, and, and all of these things, those came very easily to Paul because he had already lived a very disciplined life. And so the, the, the rate at which Paul grew in his sanctification would have been much more rapid than this woman. Uh, C.S. Lewis describes it, um, he, he compares it to, uh, to tooth whitening, toothpaste. Um, in his book, Mere Christianity, he explains that he, he once tried uh, th this tooth whitening toothpaste and apparently his teeth were, um, were really yellow and, and he said that the, the tooth whitening stuff didn't work that well for him. Like it improved his teeth a couple shades, but there were other people that it worked great for, but they tended to have naturally whiter teeth anyway. And, and so the comparison he was making, he was saying it, it's not that the tooth whitening toothpaste didn't work, it's that my teeth were a lot darker than these other people's teeth to start with, and so it appeared as though it worked better on them than it did me. <clears throat> Another illustration you could use, I, I've seen advertisements for uh, this beard growth oil. Okay, if me and Byron both tried that, <laughs> after about six months, he might have a five o'clock shadow. Does that, mean, does that mean that it didn't work? Okay, if, 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 if my beard's down to my waist and he's, you know, it's time to shave for him, uh, does that mean that it didn't work for him? No, it meant that we started in different places. But all of these illustrate what's happening with each of us in, in, with the gospel as Jesus is changing us and conforming us to the image of Christ. We all start in different places. We all have different backgrounds that we have to be brought out of. We all have different sins that we need to be redeemed of. And, and Jesus is changing us, but sometimes that process is a lot slower for some than others. But the problem with that is too often we have some believers who probably grew up in church, okay? You've never, uh, you, you've never just completely uh, immersed yourself in a sinful lifestyle You've always been a, a probably basically moral person. You've typically do the right things. And, and, and so you've, you've never had this lifestyle where you've just been completely immersed in sinfulness. And so as Jesus is changing your heart, your Christian discipline, your outward appearance might look a little better than somebody else who did have that type of lifestyle that they're being saved from. Does that mean that you're a better Christian? Did that mean, does that mean that the gospel took a little better with you than it did with them? No. It just meant that we all started in a different place and we're all going at our own rate. However, God sees fit to do that for each of us.
And the point I'm trying to make is we have to give each other a break. We have to stop being these religious Pharisees who look around and and scoff at those who aren't where we think they should be. They still participate in things that we don't like. They, they still do all of this stuff and we just scoff at them. We say, I can't believe they're still involved in that. I can't believe they're still struggling with this. I mean, they, they've been a believer for a few years. I just can't believe they're still dealing with this. We have to lose that attitude. We should exhort one another to grow. We should encourage one another to leave sin behind, but we also have to have grace with one another and rejoice in the progress that they've made. Come alongside them and celebrate what God's already done in their life because they could probably look back and say, I may not be where I need to be, but I can certainly tell you that I'm not where I used to be. And it's all because of Jesus. And we need to celebrate that with people instead of constantly uh, looking down on them for the progress that they haven't made. And in light of that, we need to constantly remind ourselves that we all need the same grace. With the parable that Jesus tells in in Luke chapter 7, he talks about two debtors. One had a smaller debt, one had a very big debt, and they were both forgiven. While one debt was smaller than the other, I want you to notice that Jesus says that neither one of them could pay it. Neither one of them could pay the debt that they owed. And so they were both in need of forgiveness and grace. And we need to remind ourselves that we may not be quite as, we may not have the sinful lifestyle that other people have had in their past, but we still need the same grace that they do. We still need the same Savior that they do. And we have to start giving each other a break every now and then because we're all just beggars trying to tell other beggars where to find bread. We're all just sinners who are in need of the same Savior. And I wanted to show you an example of kind of how this works. David uh, was the greatest king that Israel ever had. But there's this transition that happened or, or this very slow change that took place in David's heart uh, where he finally understood later on in life what it meant to need grace, what it meant to be um, a sinful person. So I want you to turn, there's two stories in David's life that really show this change that took place and it's something that needs to take place within all of us. In 1 Samuel chapter 25, To give you a little context, David is still on the run from Saul at this point. Um, He's been anointed as king, uh, but Saul is still alive. David refuses to kill Saul because he's Saul because he's going to let God do that in his own time. However, David has become a very great warrior. He has hundreds of valiant men riding with him. Uh, His military exploits are well known at this point, and and so that's kind of where we find ourselves here in First Samuel chapter twenty-five. Uh, But in verse 9, 
It says, when David's young men came, they, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David. Now, what's happening here is Nabal is a very, very wealthy man. He has thousands of sheep and goats, and he has fields of barley and wheat. He's a very wealthy man. And David has been hanging out with some of Nabal's employees, and, and Nabal's employees have found that David is a really good guy. He's, uh, he's very honorable, very trustworthy. And it was a day of feast, and so David sent some of his men to Nabal and said, hey, I've got all these guys out here. Uh, we're already pretty hungry anyway. We're on the run from Saul. We don't have a lot of food, and, and today is a feast day. Can you give us some food so that we can celebrate this feast? That was his message to Nabal. And here's Nabal's response in verse 10. And Nabal answered David's servants, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed from my shearers and give it to men who come from, who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his own sword. And about 400 men went up after David while 200 remained with the baggage. So here's what happens. Nabal basically says, no, I'm not going to give you any food. I don't know who you are. Uh, as far as I know, you're just some servant who is rebelling against his master. Okay, and essentially turns David down and, and kind of insults him at the same time. So David's servants go back, relay the message. David's ready to just go kill Nabal. Okay, he's like, okay, everybody get on your swords. Um, I'm offended. Let's go kill this guy. And, and, and so you see this. Now, Abigail, Nabal's wife, um, I don't want to leave you on a cliffhanger. Um, David ends up not killing Nabal. Um, Abigail, Nabal's wife, intervenes and, and calms David down so he doesn't kill her husband. But we see in this moment uh, a very prideful David. How dare you insult me? How dare you turn me down when I'm asking for food? To the point to where he felt so insulted that he was going to kill this man. However, if you turn to 2 Samuel, chapter 16. This is after David has been king of Israel for quite some time. This is after his incident with Bathsheba and Uriah. This is after, um, this actually kind of in the middle of a lot of internal turmoil with David's family. Uh, his sons have, uh, his sons are murdering one another. He has uh, some of his sons raping his daughters and uh, there, there's all kinds of turmoil within his family. And it's all because of David's sin. God told him that the sword would not depart from his house and, and that held true. And so David's, it's got to the point where David's own son, Absalom, has decided that he's going to take the throne away from his father. He, he's going to boot David out. He's going to kill him, whatever he has to do to take over the throne. And so he invades the city and David has to flee from his own son. And on his way out of the city, there's this bitter old man that starts to throw rocks and curse at David. And that's where we find ourselves in 2 Samuel chapter 16. Verse 5, when King David came to Behurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. 
And as he came, he cursed continually, and he threw stones at David and all the servants of King David, and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom in the, into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your, your evil is on you. And you are a man of blood. So I want you to look at this. This man is insulting David with a lie. Okay, he, he's, he's, this, he's very bitter because he's of the house of Saul, which was destroyed. And he blames David for it, even though David never raised his sword against the house of Saul. This is a complete lie to say that David is the, is the reason that, that Saul's lineage was destroyed. And so this man's cursing David. He's throwing rocks at him. He's lying about him. The David back in 1 Samuel would have certainly killed this man. If he, was, if he was going to kill Nabal for simply not giving him some food, it, reason would say that he's probably going to kill Shimei here. But keep reading in verse 9. Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. That's a good friend right there that's willing to do that for you when somebody's being mean to you. But the king said, What have I to do with you, the sons of Zariah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite Leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on, look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with the good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. So David has this complete change of attitude. He basically says, let this man curse me, and we'll just let God figure it out later. He said, it's not my job to get vengeance on him. It's not my job to take insult. So what happened to change David's attitude? Well, a lot happened. He sinned with Bathsheba. He had her husband murdered. There was a curse placed on his household. Not all, he, he was a horrible father and, and allowed his household to descend into just complete turmoil. His children were murdering one another. One of his own sons wanted to murder him. And through all of that, here's what David realized. He realized that he wasn't as great as he thought he was. He realized that maybe I do deserve some of those insults. Maybe I'm not above that. Maybe it's not up to me to get vengeance on that because I am not nearly as good as I once thought I was. And so here's the whole point of that story. <clears throat> A lot of us need to come to that same place, and I hope that we can come to that place without going through all the hardship that David did. I hope that God doesn't have to break us the way that he broke David because of his sin, to bring us to the place where we can look around and when people offend us, when people do things that we don't like, when people um, just aren't behaving the way that we expect them to or we feel insulted, I hope we can look around at people like that 
and give them a break every now and then. Be like David and say, just leave them alone. It's not my job to correct everything. It's not my job to uh, retaliate every time I feel like I'm offended or insulted. Because we're all just sinners in need of a savior. We're all in need of the same grace and we're all just trying to follow Jesus the best that we can. Your home group leaders, your Sunday school teachers, our Wednesday night helpers, your friends, the deacons, Byron and I, we're all just doing the best we can. We're trying to love Jesus, we're trying to follow him, we're trying to serve him, and we're doing it completely imperfectly because we are imperfect creatures saved by grace. And so we have to show each other grace every now and then and give each other a break, especially within our local church family. Grace should unite us. It shouldn't divide us. Our, we shouldn't be divided over little squabbles and we shouldn't allow our own arrogance to come in between us. We should come together in grace, in Christ, and rejoice in that and celebrate in that. So keep your focus on Christ this morning and share some grace with your fellow Jesus followers. And if you don't know Jesus, if you don't know this grace that we're talking about, if you don't have grace to share with someone else because you've never been shown grace yourself, Please talk to someone this morning. We are saved by grace through faith, trusting in Christ, trusting that he paid the price for your sins and repenting of those sins and following him is how we're saved. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace that you give us. We thank you for the community that you give us, God, and, and I just pray this morning that, uh, that you'll speak to us and that you'll, um, you'll cause us to show one another grace because we've been shown grace. You'll cause us to uh, share the gospel to those around us and be genuine with people, not, not hypocrites, not arrogant, not prideful, God, but genuine believers in Jesus Christ, genuine followers that just want to show other beggars where the bread is. God, please give us this heart and let us worship you with everything that we have. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.